I think of the the moment that was both incredibly important and also, you know, just really appropriation, and that is Paul Simon's Graceland. He found all these amazing South African musicians, Lady Smith, Black Mombazo, and others, and and everyone listened and they went, wow. Now, this was total appropriation, and Paul Simon made a fortune on that. Very little of it get, got kicked back to the native musicians who actually wrote all of that music, all of that. But the fact that people in the UK and in North America heard that music, they suddenly realized we're talking about human beings. We're talking about these incredibly uh, powerful musicians who are living under apartheid. That album was partly responsible for the breakdown of apartheid. Mm -hmm. There was so much hue and cry. Before that album, yeah, we knew that Black people were abused in South Africa. But when we heard their voices on Paul Simon's album, that made an enormous difference. Welcome to Reviving Virtue a podcast where we face the urgent challenges of today's world by exploring the crucial role of uncovering, together, a coherent moral narrative for our time. I'm your host, Jeffrey Anthony, on a quest to tackle liberalism's quandary and pave the way towards a more unified society. Join me on this journey as we delve into ethics, philosophy, and community building, seeking to create a common understanding that fosters human flourishing and harmony. Welcome to Reviving Virtue. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Reviving Virtue. With us today, we have a distinguished guest, Susan McClary. Susan is a renowned musicologist currently serving as the Fina H. Kulas Professor of Music at Case Western Reserve University. She has held professorships at the University of Minnesota, McGill University, UCLA, and the University of Oslo. Her research focuses on the cultural analysis of music spanning both the European canon and contemporary popular genres. Susan is best known for her book, Feminine Endings, Music, Gender, and Sexuality. However, today we'll be focusing on another one of her significant works, Conventional Wisdom, The Content of Musical Form. This book provides a fascinating exploration into the signifying dimensions of musical procedures and treats music as a set of social practices. Susan's work has been translated into at least 20 languages and has advised more than 50 dissertations. In recognition of her contributions to the field of musicology, she has received the MacArthur Foundation Genius Fellowship in 1995. So please join us in welcoming Susan McClary to our show today. Susan, welcome and thank you for being here. Thank you so much for inviting me, Jeffrey. It's my pleasure to go back to this book. Oh, this is great. I, this book really just, it just really shook me. And I'll just jump right into my first question, which is your book, Conventional Wisdom, had a profound impact on me and it's why I reached out to you. And in the first chapter, you discuss the state of musicology during your graduate studies at Harvard. You highlight how, unlike literature or poetry, music was often analyzed outside of its historical and cultural context and seen as a purely musical form. So on page six, you mentioned the cultural constructiveness of music and its power to shape our experiences. This perspective wasn't widely accepted at the time and even faced considerable hostility. Could you start by explaining to our listeners what you mean by cultural constructiveness? And could you then delve into the tension and conflict you experienced when advocating for this approach to musicology during your studies at Harvard and beyond? Certainly. This is one of the biggies. When we, music has such an enormous impact on our lives. We somehow or other want it to be real. 
We want it to be something that stands apart from other kinds of cultural forces. I've run into a number of very prominent cultural critics who still want music somehow or other to have a special place where it is not contaminated by culture. Uh, among those is Jacques Derrida, really very concerned that music maintain this place where you can go. Edward Said, who saw classical music as his refuge. He was happy to take literature apart, but not music. Hmm. So music is has had, and perhaps always has, some kind of special place in our world. We can't see it. The score is not a piece of music. We can't see it. It's very hard to account for how it has such profound effects on our bodies, our emotions, almost everything. And so we really kind of want it to be something that is ineffable, that is beyond what we can analyze, what we can take apart. I got into this because I was interested in music of the 17th century, which was regarded by everyone as music that simply didn't work. And I'm not talking about obscure people, I'm talking about Monteverdi. But because this music did not work according to the premises of the 18th century, what we call tonality, mm -hmm. it was regarded as uh, really just sort of unanalyzable, as somehow or other defective. This was the music that meant most to me when I was starting off my practices. And I realized that I could not explain anything about the 17th century, as long as we had this idea that music is supposed to be tonal in the sense that Bach and Mozart are. Um, and so um, I felt that I had to demonstrate that the musics of the 18th, 19th, 20th centuries, that music is always culturally constructed, mm. that there is no place where music is some kind of pure force, that it is always made up by human beings for particular reasons. And so the book Conventional Wisdom sought to explain the many layers of social practices that go into the making of the music that we like to think of as transcendent. Mm -hmm. uh, so I understand music always as culturally constructed, as something that relies on a legacy of materials that were already there, that relies on listeners, relies on any number of musicians who are all in the game together, trying to figure out what kind of music is going to speak to us in our moment. When you look at music that way, it's not just funny stuff like pre-tonal music and post-tonal music that you get to uh, approach. But it means that, of course, Corelli and Bach and Mozart and Brahms and Mahler have very little in common. Mm -hmm. These are not musics that are all operating under a single umbrella. They all are constantly being reshaped by the musicians of the moment to address the issues that are most prominent in their moments. So now when you were for our audience, because this is not technically a music podcast. So the music of the 17th century is mostly modal. We will say it's modal because there's 
different modes of like key centers that they move around, right? But they don't necessarily follow a logical order. And when you came into Harvard and you were looking at this transition from modal to this tonal logic, I keep putting in quotes in my hand, what was the reaction from your professors and your PhD thesis advisor? Well, uh, my advisor said, first of all, a lot of smart people had tried to figure this out in the past and they didn't get anywhere. And there wasn't any reason to think that I could. Okay. And so that was uh, one. And then I was just told over and over again that this music doesn't work. There isn't mm. any way that you can deal with it. To me, this was some of the most powerful music I had ever encountered. And I had already been a professional coach working with 18th, 19th century music. Mm. And the first time I heard this stuff, I was just knocked over. I thought, this is fabulous, number one. And number two, I don't have a clue how it works. <laughs> I wanted to figure out the logic behind these other ways of putting music together. Mm. And so I wrote a dissertation on that. It got absolutely no traction. The questions I was asking made no sense in the discipline mm. because there was such a consensus that to say music works is to say it is tonal, and it is tonal in the sense that Bach and Mozart are tonal. And that seemed to me just a black box. There's no way of getting in, no way of getting out. There was no way of actually engaging with music, given those presuppositions. It seems very convenient in a way, because you can just erase all of this knowledge pre-tonality, and it doesn't seem to, we don't need to worry about that, because that doesn't matter. That's, it's a, seems like this will lead into my next question, because this is a project of the Enlightenment, right? I'd like to delve into the relationship between the Enlightenment and the evolution of tonality. In your book, you describe tonality as a mode of cultural representation and an instrumentation for the articulation of the production of social values. This suggests a direct link between rationality introduced by the Enlightenment and the development of tonality. So in a previous episode, we discussed Ordorno and Horkheimer's critique of the Enlightenment in their book, Dialectic of Enlightenment. And where in there, the Enlightenment there is an emphasis now on form over substance. And this Kant has a pretty big influence on this. Uh, I think many modern musicians and non-musicians might not realize that tonality is a specific project born out of the Enlightenment. Could you start by explaining to our listeners what you mean by tonality as a mode of cultural representation? And could you then expand on the relationship between the Enlightenment, its rationality, and the evolution of tonality, and how it was informed by the particular contingent aspects of that time and culture? Yes, of course. <laughs> the, one of the reasons that the Enlightenment looked back at the 17th century and said it, that it was Baroque, and they meant Baroque in, a, in the pejorative sense of the word, that it's, it's misshapen. It's grotesque. It's bizarre. The poetry of John Donne, for instance, was written all as making no sense. The elaborate, twisted-up shapes of Bernini's statues, like St. Teresa in ecstasy, all of these were regarded as having this kind of excess and something that went against the 18th century notion of rationality. So music also in the 17th century had been exploring how to give musical voice to religious ecstasy, to sexual excess, to all of these things that were deliberately irrational, right? But as we get close to 1700, we find that musicians are, for one reason or another, beginning to privilege 
processes that are that are rational on every level. And the two big levels that matter are, first of all, there is a direct background structure. So we start in the key area, the tonic key area. We go to another couple of keys and we come back to the tonic. This traces, you know, your most basic archetypal plot. Mm-hmm. It, music before that time did not do that. And that, that archetypal plot is actually coming out of a vast expansion of what was the basic grammatical unit of modal music. Mm-hmm. Your listeners don't have to worry about this, but it, it had a long-standing sense of being rational. But it was used in all kinds of ways, on all kinds of levels. When we get to the end of the 17th century, that is now occupying the background of a single movement. And each of those key areas is being held in place by another rational process, which is the, the cadence. Bam, 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 you know, mm-hmm. five, one, one. And so as long as you can maintain that the cadential desire for a cadence mm-hmm. yeah. going, you can keep a key area going. Once you hit the cadence, you have to go to the next one, and then you try to keep that going as long as you can with all of these cadential harmonies. So we have this desire-driven project that is rational on every possible level. That is something that gets solidified only with Arcangelo Corelli around the year 1700. Okay. Okay, so this becomes the only game in town. Nobody wants to mess anymore with representations of religious ecstasy, with sexual excess, with any, you know, all of these things that the 17th century had been just wild about. It's why I really like being in the 17th century. (laughs) Uh, They threw it all away, all of these different ways of putting music together in exchange for two modes, major and minor. Yep. Both of which are rational on the background and on the forefront. So that's all there is. That's all tonality is. And all of those bizarre, grotesque, irrational moves that the 17th century reveled in get just kicked out. Wow. So now we have just this one way of putting music together. Now, that could only happen if. You want to have, if you want to prioritize rationality and transparency of communication above everything else. And what Corelli did when he published his sonatas is he demonstrated that you can do that in music. You can have that rational presentation and transparency. Everyone could follow because you can follow Yes, this wants to cadence as long as it does. And then we go to the next key and you can follow this. It's completely transparent. Transparency being a tremendously important element in Enlightenment culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, you know, rationality, transparency of communication, all of these things made that the perfect vehicle for the musical expression of the 18th century. So I'm going to move ahead a little bit. This was not my next question, but a big part of love of my podcast is also looking at the economics of our time. But this is coming from capitalism, which is also an outgrowth of this exact period you're talking about. And in your book, 
you mentioned that the rationality of this new mode of capitalism, of production, but the way that we're taught to delay gratification, that's how tonality is set up. As you were just explaining, we can move through these key centers, but then we can get that cadence. We're always gratified at the end. And this cadence always arrives, but we delay that gratification. This actually rises up with the idea of capitalism and investing capital and and being conservative in a way. And it just completely changes our, our entire mode of social being. So when I read that, I was like, oh my God, I have never seen that insight before. I'm curious how you came across that insight. And if you just talk about that some more, because it's fascinating. Yeah. Well, I mean, once you decide that you're going to look at tonality as a social construct, and you say, what does this have to offer that the previous compositional strategies did not have? Mm -hmm. So transparency, rationality, and this very important new set of social habits, including deferred gratification. Tonality teaches us to do this. We are held on tenterhooks all the way along. All The whole surface of a tonal piece is made up of leading tones that want to say, okay, we're about there, we're about there, we're about there. And, the, but, and so then it's the uh, uh, business of the composer to find ways of postponing and postponing and postponing. But we know all the way along exactly what we're desiring and that we will get there. And habits of thought, that is a very important one. And it bridges from the, all the way through the 18th and 19th centuries. Now, when you get to someone like Gustav Mahler, we have to wait a really long time. And Mahler is no longer sure mm. that, that the payoff is honest. In fact, Beethoven begins to wonder if this isn't dishonest. Mm -hmm. Schubert begins to wonder. So there are musicians all the way along who begin to say, here I am, and I give, keep giving my listeners the impression that if they work hard, they get pie in the sky. Right. But the Industrial Revolution and you know the horrors of the early 19th century and industrial capitalism make it very clear that, no, you can work yourself to death in somebody's factory and it's not going to get you anywhere at all. So there is a gap that opens up in the 19th century, in part because of industrial capitalism that called the lie to that narrative that had become so very important to the 18th century. It staggers forward like the undead. <laughs> People keep wanting to believe in it. Just listen to the Resurrection Symphony of Mahler. I mean, my God, he wants to be able to believe in this. Yes. And I, I mean, it's just in tatters by the time we get there. But it already had been in tatters in Beethoven's Ninth. So there, there is a, a, a real self-consciousness about what is the story that we're teaching people to believe in. And this is where Theodore Adorno, I think, is absolutely uh, right. And, and it's not coincidental that the musicians he focused on were Beethoven and Mahler. And he's able to say, these guys are aware of, of what is going on. They are increasingly resistant to going along with that. 
they try to figure out how to repackage, how to redirect those stories so that they're not just telling lies. Yeah. And so one of the really interesting ways of dealing with the 19th century is not by saying, well, it continues to be total, yeah. uh, which is not really very useful, but just seeing what these culturally and politically aware musicians are doing once they realize that, that the, the procedures they've inherited are inherently dishonest. Mm. And that's where Adorno, I think, is just our very best critic. I agree. On a slight aside, I've, I'm known more for my rock and roll drumming. I have my degree in jazz drums and all this stuff, but I've seen a lot of shows, a lot of concerts over my years. And people ask me, what's the most credible concert you ever saw? It was in the mid-1990s. I saw Mahler's Fifth, the New York Philharmonic. And it was, I'm getting goosebumps as I'm telling this. It was the most incredible performance ever seen in my life. Nothing came, has ever come close to that. Part of that, of course, was the actual the musicianship that was that I witnessed was just incredible to see over 100 musicians all phrasing together. So that, that was a little bit of the side there, but I love yeah. Mahler. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so a central theme of this podcast is exploring the exploration of shared moral narratives that can guide our actions as individuals and help weave a sense of community, even in a society as large and as diverse as the United States. We're living in a time where isolated communities each have their own set of rationality spheres. And definitions of the good life. And I think this contributes to a lot of friction and outright hostility that we're seeing today in our current culture. In your book, you discuss the role of the Black church and music in maintaining community identity in fighting for survival after em emancipation. You describe music in African-based cultures as an activity that involves the whole community, emphasizing the performance over the production of objects. In this setting, the soloists and the ensemble engage in a kind of conversation with the audience actively participating in the collective musical production. While the soloist is supported by all, the focus is not on the soloist alone, but rather on the collective engagement in the music. This paints a powerful image and suggests a different way of thinking about music and community. Uh, I was hoping you could expand on this idea and how does this model of cultural articulation work and what lessons might it offer for healing our current divisions in the American culture? And specifically, could you discuss the role of the soloist and the ensemble in the communal expression of music? And how does this dynamic, I'm realizing this is a long, long question, how does this dynamic between the individual and the group contribute to the creation of a shared moral narrative? You know, I, th I think that the music that descended from the Black church is, as you said, one of the most powerful structures we have. And in the 1960s, when, when blues-based music was embraced then by popular musicians in North America and in the UK, part of what made that music very attractive is that it brought with it that sense of community. And it is, it's not coincidental. That's when you begin to have things like Woodstock. Mm. Woodstock tried to be a secular version of the black church and you know for all its excesses it it served that function at a time when the united states was reeling from internal divisions uh this happens when martin luther king has been shot bobby kennedy has been shot the universities across the country are erupting uh in anti-war sentiment 
and the idea that everyone could come together and make music and dance and feel that community, which had been so lacking. That is one of the reasons that Woodstock continues to be this sort of Edenic moment in our history. And that fell away. I mean, uh, you know, we, we continue to try to go back into that moment in arena shows, uh, in festivals. There probably will never be a place where everybody actually believed they were, you know, in church yeah. as it, uh, with rock music, the way that happened at Woodstock. What we would do today, uh, we are so fractured. Mm. And any kind of musical idiom you can point to is going to bring its divisions along with it. The mainstream of music internationally right now is hip-hop. That is not a music that is going to seem welcoming to a very large number of people. The symphony orchestra, uh, orchestra halls, Mm -hmm. tried to be the equivalent of a church Mm -hmm. uh, for secular uh, people who wanted that sense of community and collective transcendence. Mm -hmm. That still can happen from time to time, as you experience with the New York Phil and Mahler Five. But, I mean, it's something that we all, I think, yearn for. One of the reasons that the evangelical movement got such traction is that there were so few places in the 90s and, and 80s, 90s, where you could experience collectively kind of belief and transcendence. And uh, the the appropriation of the the physical gestures of Pentecostalism, of getting over the kinds of things that I talked about with the Swan Silvertones, yep. all of those things are adopted and brought into what are often white congregations, where they can use their bodies and their music and and the preaching to try to achieve something like that. Music acts on the brain in ways that nothing else does. And if you allow the body to come along with that music, it's overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Uh, Raves attempt this. These are all speaking to very different parts of our population. What seems to me clear is that everyone hungers for that sense in which the individual is subsumed into a group for those experiences, for those really extraordinary experiences. Here I have Adorno and how to Adorno and say, you know, (laughs) you have to keep your rationality at all, at all costs. Yeah. I actually have a question here that's not prepared, but it's something I've been playing with in my head. And it has to do with this new idea of, of cultural appropriation in music. I'm confused. And so I'm in my mid forties and I was raised in music to appreciate the different cultures of music and to learn from them. So for example, I went to college at the University of Miami. So I actually studied with Cuban musicians. I've studied the music. I've played in 17 piece salsa bands and that music has become part of me. And it's really important to who I am. And not only that, but many other forms of music, such as uh, Balinese music. I just discovered that in college and it completely enamored me and I studied it. But 
Today, when I'm speaking to people, because this happened recently to me, I said, I think it's we. what we should do is study other music and we should imbue that and bring that into our own music and create because this will expand our cultural horizons rather than circumscribing it into just ours. The current younger people, I guess you could say, of music, I'm trying to say this without saying something that's going to get me in trouble because I respect where they're coming from, but I'm confused. And this is why I'm asking you because you are a full-time professor and you're actually interacting with students today. And so someone told me who's a musician that they think that's bad, that what we that's cultural appropriation and we need to not do that because that's not respectful to their cultures. But my response, and this gets back to the the capitalism, is that we're all in this mode of capitalism in which we need, we have to make money to put food on the table and a roof over our heads. And part of that means we have to engage with the system, which makes us have to do the this appropriating, which is not really, in my opinion, the project of a musician or an artist. They're not trying to appropriate. They're trying to give something. It's a reverence, in my opinion, like we're reverence for what this, let's say, Cuban music is and how it informs my music. Yes, I'm a middle-aged white guy, and that is a privilege that I have that I didn't ask for, but it's, and I'm aware of it and I want to make the world better, but there's this, this capitalist mode of production that I'm sitting in that is embedded within our culture. And I see that as the main problem and not the cultural appropriation. And I'm, I'm seeing this, I'm confused. And so I didn't prepare this for you and I, I can cut this out, but I was just curious what your interpretations are since you are embedded with the, with this new generation of musicians who are very sensitive to this. So I'm going to stop speaking and I'd love to hear what you have to say on this. This is a huge problem right now. And I also very much respect my students who will jump and wave the appropriation flag at the drop of a hat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they do have a sense that there are ethical issues at stake. Mm-hmm. And this is the, well, one of the places that they are particularly aware of. Um, part of the problem is, you know, there's this great book on minstrelsy by Eric Lott called Love and Theft, in which he says that a lot of the white musicians who blacked up and did blackface did because they genuinely loved the energies and the music that they heard black musicians doing. We are horrified now, rightly so, uh, by minstrelsy and see it as creating caricatures. Uh, but Lot continues to say this is a sign both of love and of theft. Mm-hmm. One of the problems, and this does bring us back to capitalism, is that. White musicians are in a position to make money from what they appropriate from someone else. Um, and that's been the history of the black recording industry and in, for the last hundred years. Black musicians make the music and white people benefit yep. uh, and copy and then run with it. And I think of the, the moment that is, was both incredibly important and also, you know, just really appropriation. And that is Paul Simon's Graceland. He found all these amazing South African musicians, Lady Smith, Black Mombazo and others. And, and everyone listened and they went, wow. Now, 
this was total appropriation. And Paul Simon made a fortune on that. Very little of it get, got kicked back to the native musicians who actually wrote all of that music, all of that. But the fact that people in the UK and in North America heard that music, they suddenly realized we're talking about human beings. We're talking about these incredibly uh, powerful musicians who are living under apartheid. That album was partly responsible for the breakdown of apartheid. Mm -hmm. There was so much hue and cry. Before that album, yeah, we knew that Black people were abused in South Africa. But when we heard their voices on Paul Simon's album, that made an enormous difference. So, you know, you're always saying, well, on the one hand and on the other hand, white musicians have always siphoned off what they could get. Mm -hmm. And they are the ones that make the money. And that's, I think, the big problem with appropriation yeah. is that we are in a capitalist system in which someone stands to profit. Yep. And the people who profit are not usually the ones whose cultural work is being grabbed onto. So that's, I think, the real ethical problem. And it's yes. a huge one. I agree with you. And so the discussion I had with someone was they were upset that Madonna, which you analyze one of her songs, which is my favorite Madonna song, Live to Tell, in the book, which I everyone should just read. That chapter alone is incredible. But the, this person I was speaking with was upset with Madonna because of her use of the Vogue dance. And that was appropriated from that culture of the 80s New York City club culture. My argument was the exact argument you just gave, which was that brought to a broader audience. In fact, not broader, like the globe this whole subculture and the gay culture associated with it, and all that culture, that, in my opinion, I could be wrong, was one piece of a much broader project of bringing awareness and acceptance of this culture. So yes, you can say Madonna made millions off of that, but she also was a part of the cultural transformation of accepting gay culture. I don't blame her, I blame the system. you know. And at a certain point, like my big qualm with the current like just at the drop of a pin, people saying cultural appropriation. I'm saying, I feel like that's separating us when we could maybe be coming together because we have the same goal, which is to break free of these chains of the current mode of capital production. I appreciate your yeah. comment on that. Yeah, um, yeah well, uh, I mean, I love that song. Yeah. and But I also met Willie Ninja, mm -hmm. who was a very important figure in that scene sometime around when, right after Vogue came out. Mm -hmm. And he said, so here we were, we were this little community. Uh, this is a community, by the way, that is being represented really extraordinarily well in the, in the show Pose. Uh, it's a character who is pretty clearly modeled after Willie Ninja. So Willie said, you know, so this comes out, we had been just doing our thing uh, and uh, in our clubs. And then this came out, and we thought, wow, now we're going to be on the big time. And and then, no, they, everyone said, oh, you're just Madonna wannabes. And this is actually, that dilemma is presented in the second, I think the second season of uh, Pose, uh, where they are celebrating that finally they're getting some respect, and then... These queens whose lives are devoted to these kinds of performances 
try to break into a mainstream and everyone says, oh, well, yeah, I've been there, done yet that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and so that's kind of the problem. You know, once someone who has a broader platform grabs onto something, then the, uh, the people who had previously had that as their main mode of cultural expression right. suddenly find themselves with, you know, having to invent something new. I mean, that's the way that black music has worked all the way through the whole history of the performance or the, the sound recording. They invent something, gets appropriated. Okay, we'll invent something else. So here is R&B that gets appropriated. Okay, here's funk that gets appropriated. Yep. Hip-hop. Hip-hop has mostly resisted. I mean, at the beginning, it looked as though there were going to be, it was going to be the same narrative. And Black artists have really prevailed and managed to create so many mutations that they have mostly continued to have ownership over that discourse. But, but it's, you know, it, it, it this is, uh, it's sticky. Yeah. Uh, world is sticky. Music can't be re- uh, removed from its its cultural right uh, uh, frame, framework, uh, you know. And as soon as it's out there, all of the interests of d- different parts of the society are going to be grabbing and fighting over it. Uh, so, yeah, appropriation is a problem. Yeah, I appreciate this discussion. This is something I'm wrestling with a lot, and. This was been fantastic. I really appreciate that. And I'm looking at my notes here and we're coming close to time. And I'm deciding what do I want to talk about here? I think I want to bring this up because this is not part of your book technically, but the reason I found your book is I spent 17 years working at Pandora Radio. I was started there before it was called Pandora and my job was a music analyst, essentially a musicologist. I don't really like using that name because I'm not a trained musicologist, but I was doing music theory analysis and on something called the Music Genome Project. And each song was broken down into roughly, and this, I'm not saying anything that's a secret, but each song is broken down into roughly 400 parts. And I figured everything from how breathy a voice is, which is very seductive, or what's the tonality? Is it in major or minor? And we, of course, we know if it goes into the minor and the bridge, and, you know, we have all these ways of cataloging that. So the idea was, well, this is a way for us to democratize the music discovery s- service. So like, the idea was the founder of Pandora, he was in a band and they used to tour and he'd be like in, it's, it's rough touring, you're in a 15 passenger van, a Conaline van, you're going around the country and you show up at a, at a venue in Iowa, been on the road for eight hours and it's a Tuesday night and there's six people there and it's really bad. And you're like, if only people knew I sounded like Tom Petty and all these people like Tom Petty, we could get some people out here. So this was the idea was the Music Genome Project would remove the subjectivity and be more objective. But what's interesting though is, I'm going to read what I have here is, now I believe that this project has been bad. (laughs) I've talked about this privately with some friends and I I forgot to mention why I'm mentioning Pandora to begin with, is that I was posting some screenshots of your book to to my my Facebook page and a lot of my Pandora friends were like, this is amazing. And they were really just amazed by your book. And it was a Pandora employee that heard one of my first podcasts. And he's like, you need to read your book because what I was talking about was very similar to what you were saying. But what I feel, I view music now as having moved from like the forefront of our lives to the background consciousness of our lives. And it's no longer occupies this place in our lives that we engage deeply with it. And I see it also, you know, everything's sounding the same, being written for the algorithm rather than written from more of a 
transcendental or something feeling authentic. I know you teach, we discussed this already, and you interact with your undergraduate and graduate students. And I'm curious, that is there a talk about this among them, of how music, have they sensed this, that this music has gone from internal to just being a background of other parts of our lives that are more important at that time? Okay, so speaking as a music historian, and I, I teach everything from the first discussions of music in, in Plato and Aristotle and the Bible, all the way up until music that is released within a week of when I talk about it at the end of the class. So wow. the whole schmear. Mm-hmm. And what you're talking about is, has always been present. This is always the way history unfolds. Mm. Uh, there are places where there's kind of plateau everyone's accepts what's going on and then suddenly there is boom something out of left field mm. and everybody goes oh my god you know what is that right oh uh, i mean this is just the way it works mm-hmm. and i think that part of uh, of the reason that you would have a sense that you know that what it's like today is your age <laughs> you identified yourself as being in your 40s mid 40s yeah Mid forties. Well, I'm in my late seventies, so you know. So I know that uh, you know that uh, that I've seen so many styles unfold. I've seen so many revolutions in music, things that just blow up. And I know that my students do not understand their own music as just sort of background. Everybody in their own and generation. Everybody is grabbing onto different things mm. that to me, it may sound all alike. And a lot of it does sound all alike to me. And I think that's my problem. Okay. Not the problem of the music mm. or what's going on today. We haven't had another big bang, I think, since the emergence of hip hop, mm-hmm. um, which was a big bang. Yeah. I mean, it really was, you know, to come out of the South Bronx. This area that had been completely decimated and leveled by the Robert Moses Expressway, and to have suddenly this vibrant culture born out of no nothing. I mean, right. less less than nothing. That was just an amazing event. But so was Woodstock. So were all of these other things. I think we are on a kind of plateau. We're not fighting any longer about whether hip hop is music or not. And, you know, and we have so many varieties of musics that are available right now. What I always tell my students is that they will, as their lives unfold, probably encounter three or four big bangs, you know, where they think that, oh, yeah, I've been there, done that. I know all of this. And then suddenly something that initially may seem repugnant mm-hmm. uh, suddenly jumps up and suddenly grabs everyone's attention. Punk uh, did that, you know, I, and early rock and roll did that. I'm in Cleveland where the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is because Alan Freed, our local DJ, was one of the people who started playing R&D for white teenagers. And that's where that made the jump mm. of the black community into the the enormous phenomenon that it was so uh you know uh, <laughs> yeah you may think we're in a steady state but it won't last that long yeah 
I'm glad you're telling me I'm wrong because it actually makes I got I, I got a warm feeling because I I have been very concerned about this honestly and uh, and so I like to hear that I'm wrong about this I yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so when you talk about also like these big shocks I remember just so my listen I remember where I was the first time I heard smells like Teen Spirit that was such a different mode of articulation that at that time in music everything on the radio was was heavy metal glam rock metal and then you had Madonna's and and the R and B pop ish stuff. Uh, you had the replaying of the punk all like, but it was like you know it's been replaying over and over again. When that song hit, it was a complete change of everything. I mean, I literally know where I was. I could paint a picture of it. It was so powerful, uh, right? You know, and uh, and I do I do agree that we I feel like we are on a plateau, and I'm excited for this new whatever is to come. I am excited for this. So I don't want to, we're right at time. And so I, I do want to say that this conversation, I didn't get to ask about a third of the questions I had prepared, but we did get this discussion on cultural appropriation, which I really appreciated. And I'm hoping the people who listen to this appreciate it. And also don't jump down my throat. It's something I'm wrestling with. And I'm being, I'm trying to be vulnerable here too, by asking these questions, because I want to understand why I feel a disconnect because it's such an important thing to me. And I think we we broke some barriers for me, and it's going to make me go and rethink a lot. And I appreciate that, Susan. I want to extend a heartfelt thanks for your time and the invaluable insights you've shared with us today. Your contributions to the field have, have truly enriched our world. And we're all better off for your work and your wisdom. And thank you once again. Thank you so much for having me, Jeffrey. You bet. Wow. So how about that? That was just an incredible interview. I really hope you enjoyed that one. I went way off script. I had prepared three full pages of notes and questions for for Susan. And we've got to, like I said in there, I think I said I had a third left. It should have been the other way around. I only got to a third of my questions. I was hoping to bring up a bunch of other topics, but we started off the reason that this video is in a different format from the other ones, if you're watching the video as opposed to listening on your podcast platform, is that we ran into some technical difficulties with the recording uh, software. So we had to switch to Zoom at the last second. Uh, we lost about 15 minutes of our recording time. Regardless of that, this was an incredible discussion. I hope you appreciate the, the vulnerability I showed and also the, the honesty and, and incredible analysis that Susan gave us regarding a wide variety of topics. I want to make sure that you check out Susan's book called Conventional Wisdom, The Content of Musical Form. This is why I brought her on the program. Uh, she has multiple books out and she has a lot of papers out. In fact, if you go on Google Scholar and look at her most cited paper, it's one relating to hip hop, which she mentioned many times in this episode. So I also wanna say that this is a good time to remind you all that I have a new bookshop.org landing page where you can buy all of these books that I talk about, either with the authors or the ones that are mentioned during our podcast. Also, I am really trying to promote the YouTube portion of this. I produce a video for each one of these. It's very time consuming, but I'm, I really, I actually like the YouTube version of it. I watch a lot of my podcasts on YouTube. I split it up between my audio and visual. And uh, so head on over there. Just, you know, go to YouTube, search for Reviving Virtue. I've tested it out. It comes up right away. Please subscribe. It will really help me a lot. And I just also want to say that uh, we're going to have a whole bunch of new uh, episodes coming up with a bunch of new authors. And I, I'm really excited for that. So in the meantime, Let's each do our part to nurture our societal garden, fostering growth of shared symbols, meanings, virtues, and moral narratives that resonate with our time and our aspiration. So if you'd like to do a transcript of this episode, 
you can get that on my Patreon page for the $3 a month tier. And then, you know, I have a $5 a month tier and you can get early access to all these episodes. For instance, this episode is going to be uploaded on June 23rd, uh, which is about three weeks before this is released to the public. But that's just one way you can help support this podcast. It takes a lot of work to do these, but I'm really enjoying it. So just listening is a, is a huge support, and I really appreciate that. If you have any comments or feedback, you can email me. All that stuff is in the show notes. So please send me an email if you have any comments. If you think what I'm saying is ridiculous or you want to be supportive, I, I appreciate the support. So until then, thank you, and we'll see you next week. Be well.